The reading tonight is from Mark chapter 9, beginning to read from verse 1. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain... Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? (coughs) Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've just sung that the Lord would speak to us, so let's be in anticipation that that would happen as we go through this passage that we're looking at today. We're at the end of our series of talks on Mark's Gospel. And we finish by looking at Jesus appearing in his glorious state, which is commonly called the Transfiguration. I wonder what was going through your mind as that Bible passage was being read. Did you imagine what it would have been like to see Jesus in his shining glory for yourself. There's nothing quite like a personal encounter, being close up and experiencing it for yourself. We often see dramatic news, but it's not quite like actually seeing it for yourself. Being there, experiencing something can be life-changing. Did you go to a Christian summer camp this year? Were you there when Ben Stokes won the Cricket World Cup? Have you bought your ticket for the first commercial space trip yet? Maybe you're still saving up for that one. You can buy experiences. You can go to events. You can experience things that you'll never forget. Wouldn't it be something if you could book a transfiguration experience on the top of Mount Carmel on visitisrael.com? Not even Richard Branson can offer you that. 
there will be no repeat performance of the transfiguration. The next time Jesus returns to the earth, everyone will see him in his glory. And we need to be ready for that day before he comes or before we die. Now you probably already know or you've worked out for yourself that the point of this encounter on the mountain was to convince the disciples that Jesus is God incarnate. He's not just an extraordinary man. He really is God in human flesh and blood. And it's the turning point of Mark's gospel. Starting with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, and then with this heavenly encounter, it explains who Jesus is. It's a key moment, a vital part, that if you miss, the rest of the gospel doesn't make sense. Because from now on, the gospel focuses on one thing. The whole book changes at this point. And everything from now on is focused on Jesus going to Jerusalem, where he was going to be killed and after three days rise again. Now, if Jesus was just an extraordinary man, that would have been a tragedy. And there wouldn't have been a resurrection. And it wouldn't have been the event that captured hearts and has transformed lives for 2,000 years. It wouldn't have saved me from going to hell, from experiencing eternal anguish and suffering in that place that we're all heading for. Because none of us are good enough for heaven. As sinners, we can't enter into it because we'd spoil it. Only Jesus, as God in human form, can save imperfect people like you and me from going to hell. So it's vital to understand who Jesus is, if we're to understand the good news. So as I looked at this passage, I asked myself, why are there only three disciples invited? Only Peter, James and John get to see Jesus transfigured in his glory, in his glorious heavenly state. Surely the twelve disciples were chosen to be witnesses to confirm to the world who Jesus really is. So why weren't all of them there? And maybe a small crowd as well for good measure. Shouldn't we all expect to have an experience like this to convince us who Jesus really is? Why were there only three disciples there with Jesus on the mountain? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. He just tells us the good news story of Jesus as the disciples told him. Let me ask you a personal question. How do you read the Bible? Do you use daily reading notes? Do you like to read through whole books in one go? And do you look for surprises, things that don't seem to make sense the first time you read them through? Are you inquisitive? I like to know the reason why things happened. Why is it Moses and Elijah and not Abraham 
and Isaiah. Why are there just three disciples? Why did Peter talk about making camp with three shelters for Elijah, Moses and Jesus? I don't always find all the answers, but sometimes by looking into some of the detail, we do discover what it means for us today. And tonight, I can't look at all those questions, but I do just want to explore one of them. If you're interested in the other questions, they're good ones. You can ask me about them afterwards, but I just want to ask this one. Why Peter, James and John were chosen to witness Jesus in his eternal glory? And to do this, we shall take a look at what happened to Peter, James and John after the event, and then we'll see what they wrote about it later on in their lives. So we're going to be going through the Bible a bit today, so if you haven't got a Bible in front of you, do please uh, find one. No one will be embarrassed if you have to go and find one from a, somewhere else if you haven't got one. My talk is in three parts this evening to attempt to answer the question, why was it these three? Part one, what difference did it make to Peter, James and John to see Jesus in his heavenly glory? And part two, what do they say about it later on in their lives? And part three, so what? What difference is that to me here? today in Basingstoke. So first part, what difference did it make to these three disciples? So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4 on page 1095. Acts chapter 4. I promise that we will return to Mark chapter 9, but let's first look at what happened to Peter, James and John. Page 1095. Acts chapter 4, I'll be starting at verse 1, and the first thing we notice is that all three of them paid a heavy cost. Let me read verses 1 to 3. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Well, we're now in the early days of the church. The church is growing rapidly, but the Jewish leaders are trying to stop it. Peter and John are arrested and threatened but they're soon released because these religious leaders are afraid of upsetting the crowd. Isn't it so easy for religious leaders to become crowd pleasers rather than doing what's right? It's just like that today. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of his death and resurrection, that he came to save me from my sin, offends people who think they're better than that. But God knows this, and it hasn't ever stopped his purposes across the years. And he preserved Peter and John, who carried on preaching the gospel, despite fierce opposition and further arrests by these same religious leaders, 
So Peter and John paid a heavy cost for telling people who Jesus was and why he came. Well, let's look at what happened to James. Was he finding life any easier? Skip forward to Acts chapter 12 on page 1106. Acts chapter 12. Let's see what trouble he got into. Verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four guards, four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So what the crowd-pleasing Jewish leaders had been unwilling to do, ruthless Herod did. James becomes the first apostle to be martyred. He's not the first martyr for Jesus. That was Stephen, who even as he was being stoned to death, was given his own vision of the glorified Jesus in heaven. There is a cost to being a follower of Jesus. And in those days, it was often your life itself. So both Stephen and James were offered a view of Jesus in his shining glory before they became martyrs for the sake of the gospel. Herod was delighted with the approval that he received for killing James. So he arrested Peter also. In those dangerous days at the birth of the church, Peter must have thought it was now his time to follow in Jesus' steps and like James and Stephen, be killed for talking about Jesus. Let's carry on reading from verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered. 
and were praying. I love this story. I could read on a little bit further about the fast that took place because the prayer meeting that was praying for Peter's release didn't believe that he could be at the door knocking trying to get in. And he was left standing outside in dreadful danger. But I imagine that we might have done just the same if we were under that kind of threat of death and someone's knocking on the door and we really don't believe that God answers prayer. And did you notice that Peter had to be slapped in the face to wake him up? He knew he was about to die, so I don't know how he could sleep. Reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was wide awake and fully aware what was going to happen to him but the disciples couldn't keep awake even for a few moments to pray. Isn't it good that when we're overcome with circumstances and find it hard to pray for ourselves that our brothers and sisters can pray for us? But did you notice the little detail about the venue of the prayer meeting in verse 12? It was John Mark's mum's house. John Mark. That's the Mark who wrote Mark's gospel that we've been studying on Sunday evenings. Including what we're reading tonight about the story of the transfiguration. I wonder if it was when Peter knocked on the door and came into the house that Mark thought, I must carefully record what these apostles experience with Jesus before Herod succeeds in killing them all. Well, I could say more about what happened to them later on in their lives. But let's just say that they knew what Jesus meant when he said, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. You must expect to die to this life if you want to live forever. It's still true for Christians. We must stop living for ourselves and hand over our life to Jesus if we want to live with him forever. But that was last week's talk. So let's move on to part two. What do these three disciples say about the transfiguration later on? in their writings. This is the best bit of the talk. Here is where I found some buried treasure by digging deeper into God's word. Now we've just seen that James was martyred before he could tell what it meant to him. Perhaps we have something of what he said told by the early church before he was killed and surely his conversations with his brother John would have been remembered as John wrote about it later. So let's look at what Peter and John wrote. Firstly, Peter's second letter. Turn to page 1222, please. Page 1222, that's 2 Peter, chapter 1. Two Peter, chapter 1 beginning to read from verse 12. 
This is Peter's writing. So I, was all, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. For we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we were told when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So what did the transfiguration mean to Peter? It meant that he was totally committed to telling people what happened this is no fairy story he says this is no cleverly written murder mystery plot this is the precious faith that comes through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ this is a totally reliable eyewitness account of exactly what happened we might add with warts and all You will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's so many little details here that I find interesting. In verse 17, Peter doesn't quote all the words that God said to him. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. He missed out the last phrase. Listen to him. Maybe Peter was still embarrassed that it took him so long to start listening to Jesus about his death and resurrection. But now Peter writes to his readers, listen to me. This really happened. It was a foretaste of how things will be when Jesus comes in glory and every eye will see him. You may be living in a dark place where people pay no attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come out of the darkness and look at the light of Jesus. Let the truth of God's word dawn upon you. Start a new day with Jesus as your saviour. It's a heart thing. And another little detail. Did you see that Peter doesn't mention what he said about erecting tents for Moses, Elijah and Jesus anymore? In verse 13 he says, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Peter knows he's living on borrowed time. 
And the Lord has made clear to him that he is close to death. There will be no angel sent to rescue him this time. So while he still can, he pleads with the church and he pleads with us across the centuries for all believers to take the gospel seriously. Pay attention to what's written. Our bodies are only like tents, temporary dwelling places. Invest in eternal life where we will dwell with Jesus forever. The gospel is all about Jesus who is God in human form. Listen to him. That's Peter's plea. And what about John? What did this experience mean to him and what does he write about it? Well, turn with me. I think this is the last one before we return to our passage. Turn with me to page 1063. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, verse 1, on page 1063. And notice the words he uses to describe Jesus. He doesn't use the name Jesus to begin with. He calls him the Word. But notice how he talks about him being God, being light, living as flesh and blood, and seeing his glory. See how his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration helps him explain to us who Jesus really is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist he's talking about. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. That's John the Baptist again. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I think that's just a brilliant description of who Jesus is and why he came. Verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally it says, he lived in a tent with us. He made his earthly shelter with other people by becoming a person. No longer would Moses have to go to the tent of meeting to speak to the Lord. The Lord was here in person. And John goes on to explain. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And in verse 17, he contrasts the law that Moses was given on the mountaintop. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If you want to see God, if you wish God would make himself known to you more clearly, John says, I was there when it happened. Jesus Christ of Nazareth came to earth. We saw him in all his heavenly glory. And he has brought us the gospel of grace and truth. Now nobody could make up a story like this. No other world religions have anything like the gospel. That God himself in human form should prove who he was by his miracles and by living a perfect life of love, always speaking the truth, always explaining why he was here on the earth and then laying down his life to die for us, to take our place, to make us good enough for heaven. There is no other like him. John's experience of the glorified Jesus resulted in his beautiful description of Jesus as the Word who was with God and who was God, always existing before anything in the universe was made. And he is the one who created everything. That's John's testimony. So James, Peter and John paid a heavy cost for witnessing the transfiguration and telling people about the gospel that he brings. Peter and John wrote about what they'd seen of Jesus. They were sworn to secrecy on Mount Carmel. But after Jesus rose from the dead and he sent his Holy Spirit to fill them with power, they lived the rest of their lives to pass on the news. They carefully explained who Jesus was in their preaching and teaching and writing so that everyone can hear the good news of the gospel of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So finally, part three of answering that question. What does it mean to me today that Peter, James and John got to see Jesus as he really is? 
So finally, let's return to our original passage, Mark chapter 9, which is on page 1012. Mark chapter 9, and I just want to read verses 2 to 8 again. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before him. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. He was so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Or you've seen what the event meant for James, John and Peter. They didn't forget it. And they lived as long as the Lord gave them by carefully explaining its significance to others. Of course, they retained their personalities. Peter would continue to blurt things out and sometimes get things completely wrong. He would open his mouth before he'd engaged his brain. And in this case, wouldn't it be much better if Peter had just listened and paid attention rather than suggesting that they put some tents up? And this time, Peter doesn't get a rebuke from Jesus. He gets one from God the Father, who says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Peter still hadn't really listened to what Jesus had told him about his death and how three days later he would rise from the dead. God the Father says, Listen to him. And I think that's the point of the story for us. You don't need a Mount Carmel experience. You have Mark's simple story. He tells us the gospel story. It's carefully put together so you don't miss any important parts. All you need to do is to listen, pay attention, and take the appropriate action. So let's end with verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. One day that will be true for you. When we die, or when Jesus returns to this earth, we will all see Jesus in his glory. And nothing else and no one else will be able to save us from his blazing holiness. And like the disciples, we will all be frightened. But if you've listened to and paid attention to the gospel and acted upon it, then he will welcome us home. If we've not paid attention to the gospel, then we'll have every reason to be terrified. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Father God, thank you for Mark's good news story of Jesus. Thank you that he made it so clear and detailed. Please help us to listen carefully and pay attention and act upon it so that we will be ready to meet Jesus in all his glory when we die or when he returns to this earth. Father, thank you for making it possible for us to be your children, brothers and sisters of Jesus, adopted into your family. Please don't let us get caught up in the things of this world and lose sight of who you are and what you have done for us. Amen.